When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Welcome to the Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. everyone and welcome to The Book Pod. I'm Corrie Perkin, a journalist and former bookshop owner who is delighted to be resurrecting our little podcast after a couple of years on the interchange bench. We have new theme music and a new producer, the brilliant and highly organised Melinda Williams. But our goal to bring writers and readers together via the digital world remains our mission. And if you missed any of the episodes we recorded in 2018 and 2019, you can always go back and have a listen to them. It's a new year and a new look book pod. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll subscribe. We'd love you to give us a rating via Apple iTunes because that helps other book lovers to find us. And we hope you enjoy our fortnightly conversations with local and international writers, journalists and heroes of the publishing world. Let's turn the page on episode one. And today's guest is Australia's gracious playwright, David Williamson. Just before Christmas, David's new autobiography was released. And if you haven't yet sourced a copy of Home Truths, a memoir, we hope today's chat inspires you to leap in. The book celebrates David's 50 years as a playwright and screenwriter, but he also uses his storytelling skills and extraordinary intuition to examine the private David, the tall and awkward, slightly gangly engineering student from Bentley, Victoria, who found the courage to move into the arts, who immersed himself in the early Carlton theatre scene, whose humility allowed him to learn from others. Over the decades, David was able to withstand the critics, although some reviews caused him grief and anxiety at the time. He rode the setbacks, the muck-ups, the highs and lows of family life, the love affairs and emotional entanglements, and more recently, health concerns. Home Truths is a memoir packed with anecdotes, creative characters, political and social reflections, and family love. I hope you enjoy our conversation with David Williamson. David, this is such a terrific read. And for someone like myself who started going to the theatre not long after you started writing for the theatre, I just found it such a fascinating document of record. I'd forgotten that I had seen 
so many Williamson plays and also that I had watched so many great Australian actors perform your work and that so often your plays so astutely captured the zeitgeist of that time. I'm interested in your choice of title, David. One dictionary edition, a definition of home truth says an unpleasant fact that jars the sensibilities. <laughs> Another di dictionary definition said home truth, a true but unpleasant fact about yourself that another person tells you. Why the title? Well, the second one, the other person tells you, maybe it's me as a playwright uh, telling my society that uh, it's a little less than perfect on occasion uh, because I, my work does carry an element of satire and, and, and humour that does sometimes uh, investigate, make fun of and criticise the mores and manners of our society. Uh, the other home truth is perhaps some unpleasant truths I told myself about my own behaviour during my, um, my life. And I found myself finding these parts a little difficult, more difficult to write than when I was writing about my work, family and times, because um, uh, I felt that I've spent a lot of time dissecting the foibles and faults of my fellow Australians on stage. So... I was duty-bound, in a sense, to look at my own foibles and faults as honestly as I could. So the home truth is about, home truth is about me and about our society, I guess. That's how I'd, I'd explain it. So the book reminded me, David, that so often over the years, you've actually inserted yourself or parts of yourself into various characters. Which characters and indeed which plays do you consider now with the perspective of time to have been the closest to the real David Williamson? Well, I think the David Williamson depicted, or, or the, the, the character Don in Don's Party uh, carried a lot of my own characteristics. Um, that was a play that was pretty closely observed from life, um, where I, I, I plundered my friends' personas. Not, I mean, look, you never put a person on stage. You pick elements of them that suit you and you pick elements of yourself and you make up more. But certainly that was a fairly closely observed piece of drama about events I'd been part of. So, yeah, the Don in Don's party wasn't a million miles away from myself and unfortunately it wasn't a million miles away from some of my friends who didn't particularly um, enjoy it at the time. Uh, they all forgave me at various times, except one. So, but I was more careful after that. I, I did make a point of showing my drafts to anyone I thought might identify themselves uh, as being in the play. I was surprised to see in the book how often people were quite pleased. Yes. Um, well, I'm still great friends with uh, Peter Crowley, who has no hesitation in admitting he was the prototype for... Uh, my um, uh, arch womanizer chauvinist Cooley in the uh, in the play. His defence now, of course, is a, a perfect family man and would never behave like that and never has uh, since. Uh, and he, he became a very respectable um, uh, and successful lawyer in Canberra. So yes, he. Uh, some of the others in that play didn't uh, react quite as <laughs> quite as well. And my wife at, at times, um, Kristen, got really fed up. Um, I think there was one time when Robin Nevin came up to her and said, well, it looks like I'm playing you again, Kristen. 
And um, she was not too happy about this. She, at one time, she said, if there's another character with a, um, a sharp wit who doesn't put up with nonsense, uh, whose name starts with K, uh, I'm out of here. So I had to be a bit more careful. Uh, but yeah, the most searing portrait uh, of my worst faults is in a play called Handful of Friends, which um, was early in my career. But when I reread it again after 45, I don't know how many years since I read it, I went, oh no, did I? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> I shouldn't have been quite that honest. You, um, you, you do say at the start of the book that it, in order to write this memoir, you went back and revisited and read your plays and that there were um, elements that surprised you, none the least of which with some of them you'd forgotten how they entered. I'd <laughs> forgotten. Uh, I, I, no, right from the start, I thought, oh, I wonder how this one works out. I, uh, so long since I'd seen them. It was like a page turner. Gee, uh, I hope I hope this maintains my interest, uh, uh, and it, it usually did. So um, that was that was reassuring. But I wondered what when you went back over that um, vast of of yours, what uh, you know, what what kind of singularly struck you about your voice and your plays? Well, look, I I was sort of analytical about the work as I was reading it. And I was saying, yeah, um, the comment that my actors often made that your dialogue appears to be naturalistic, it appears to be the way people speak, but it isn't. Uh, it, has, uh, it has rhythms uh, akin to musical rhythms that, that have to be captured by a good actor like Robin Nevin to make the, uh, the lines work. And, and I was pleased to see that that music was there, and um, and it, it. I think a necessary component of drama is there has to be some element of the language, a music in the language, or something like that that raises it above the quotidian. You know that, that um, television drama can give us absolutely how people do speak, but the stage seems to need something a little extra to 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 make it live. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I I saw the music in my own lines and and was quite pleased with myself. <laughs> Is it like um, an exaggeration? Do you think because you've written for television and film as well as the stage? Yeah, you, you have to be much more prosaic. Um, uh, television and film, you can't have fun with the rhythms of language as much as you can on stage, and that's why I always love being a uh, a theatre writer uh, because um, right from the start of theatre. The language has had a special quality uh, from, uh, you know, well, oh, Shakespeare, most obvious, uh, started as a poet, and the rhythms are beautiful in, in Shakespeare's uh, work. They're not, I'm sure, the real speech that King Harry made um, at Agincourt wasn't quite as fluent and uh, poetic as, as, as Shakespeare's effort, but, um, but you need that. Uh, and, yeah, I, I, I think... I, th I think that's why essentially I was a stage writer. But the other thing that I did observe was my eternal fascination with the social dance that we all do to get through life. The, um, the main factors of um, our human nature that I could identify were a, a pretty strong self-interest. We look after our own interests first. Secondly, to temper that, we are very social creatures. So we don't want to push our self-interest to the point where we alienate uh, all others so sometimes we have to cleverly disguise that self-interest and be nice people uh, the third aspect of human nature which is the most 
positive, I think, is that we, unless we're psychopathic, we are empathetic. And um, if we hurt people, we suffer guilt, we suffer shame. So to push our self-interest to the point where we actually do damage to other people is, is, is uh, something that causes us pause in life. So the social downside was all was there. I was eternally fascinated with this, the way we juggle those three main balls of our human nature to try and get ourselves through, um, through life. You mentioned um, Shakespeare before, and um, it's it's interesting that you did because he was kind of, in a way, sitting on my shoulder as I was reading your memoir, in that great work never dates. I just think a few years ago, back to um, seeing one of John Bell's, I must have been, perhaps it was on the verge of me turning 50, I can't recall, but watching Julius Caesar, a production here in Melbourne with Bell Shakespeare, and what a brilliant play it was and it seemed to coincide at the time with yet another prime minister about to be rolled in Canberra and because we've had a few of those lately and as I was watching it I just thought how prescient how uh, astute how contemporary are these issues and reading your book your memoir and recalling all of those plays of yours that I have seen in the past I remembered that at the time they resonated so strongly. But going back and visiting them again through your memoir, I realised that there are timeless issues. There, is, there will always be corruption. There will always be cheating on husbands or wives. There will always be the, the grasp for, for money or, or the glitzy life in Sydney as opposed to the intellectual darker side of life in Melbourne. It, it's just, they're eternal themes. They are, Corinne. That's uh, exactly why I wrote my play Dead White Males, I was incensed by the postmodern theories of the time, which said uh, we humans are totally constructed by our particular societies. We are nothing more than the ideologies that impinge on us from our society. And that would have ruled out Shakespeare, would have ruled out everyone, because no, we are partly constructed by our society, the attitudes of the times, but we also have an eternal human nature that, as you said, the emotional needs, the deep emotional needs of humanity haven't changed since the times of the Greeks. We can understand why Medea is in a fury about her husband's infidelity. As you say, it still happens, uh, it still happens now. So the postmodernists were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, they were saying all literature is just propaganda uh, written by uh, a member of the ruling class trying to promote their class's interests. That's all literature is. Uh, and I, I just something I deeply rebelled. No, the best literature is timeless because it tells us about those same deep emotional needs that we share with humanity and have always shared with humanity. There will always be ambition, revenge, uh, hatred, infidelity, uh, this, the, the mad scramble for status, uh, the mad scramble for power is eternal. Uh, and, and in fact, it's interesting that you brought up Julius Caesar. That was the play that really turned me onto drama. It was, our, it was our fourth form English text, or was it our third form? I don't know. We had a brilliant English teacher called uh, Alan McLeod who brought that play to life. That was the first Shakespeare I'd encountered. He acted out the parts and he made that very point. He said, this is 400 odd years ago, but those needs 
those motives, those human motives are still with us today. Uh, so don't think it's a dated piece. And I carried that with me. And I was excited by drama from that moment on. I want to talk about, you mentioned the critics, and I want to talk about them a bit later. But let's, um, you've, you've brought up your, your how, the, how the, the, the beacon was lit, if you like, for drama and for stage and so on back as a, as a school kid. But again, one of the things I love about your memoir, David, is it's a celebration of family life, your children, your grandchildren, of course, Kristen, who's been your, you know, your right-hand woman and always will always be one of my journalistic heroes, by the way. But I wanted to start with your parents, Elvie and Keith. And Kristen once said, with parents like those, it's no surprise you became a dramatist. And like you, my early years were spent in lowerish middle-class Bentley, where I was born. And I don't think your home and my home, or indeed that uh, rather conservative southeastern Melbourne suburb of Bentley, I don't think our upbringings were necessarily so different. And yet your skills of observation and your emotional intelligence allowed you to see what the others, the rest of us didn't. The tensions in your parents' marriage, your mother's unfulfilled ambition that she didn't marry a doctor, you know, your closeness with your brother and, and the whole kind of politics of the wider, you know, families, the, you know, your dad's family and your mother's family. Did you sense this at the time that you were recalling these things or are these just part of the adult reflecting back on the child's life? Well, I couldn't analyse what was going on when I was a child. I knew something malignant and difficult for me and my brother to cope with was going on. I, I knew there was eternal conflict in our, our house and it disturbed me and it disturbed him. Um, we, we thought life was going to be one miserable panorama of endless conflict that that seems, and that led me to think, well, it did pose that initial question, why do people fight all the time? What's, what's going on? Do we need to, does this need to happen in every household? It was worrying. So it was a, it was a question that kept popping up right through my early years. Why, where does conflict come from? And that was a, um, uh, a big question in my life, but it wasn't until later in life that I tried to um, analyze it more fully. The, um, the engineering years of your life, so you left, you left school, first, first time you did matric, not so lucky, second time at University High, got the, got the great grades, made it to Melbourne University Engineering School. And it's just such an interesting pathway how you go from a life as an engineer and a, and a, and a, and a lecturer later on in engineering to starting to write novels first and then plays. And like a lot of people in your milieu, you know, you're in the early 60s, you're influenced by people like Jack Cherowick and Catch-22 and Miles Davis. It's a pretty typical 60s teenager uh, life. But then you mention Graham Kennedy, which really sparked my interest because, I mean, you and I share a good friend in Graham Blundell and Graham Blundell's admiration for Graham Kennedy knows no boundaries. And I just wondered if you could tell our audience today what it was about Graham Kennedy that so impacted so many of us. Well, I think that we were living in suburban Melbourne, as you say, which which um, some people have, have deemed 
uh, when we were young, or when well, I'm older than you, but when I was young, um, suburban Melbourne was often quoted as the dullest <laughs> place on earth to live. <laughs> the, the newspaper headlines, uh, the, uh, it got really exciting when there was a, a, a drive to collect wood for uh, impoverished pensioners. And stuff. Can, I, can I tell you, David, it's been pretty boring in the last few couple of years with all these lockdowns. And I do, yeah, yeah. I do remember the highlight of our family weekend was Dad would throw us in the car and take us to see display homes in areas known as Mount Mount Waverley. Yes. Yeah. Well, our big thing was to go out to Diggers Rest and pick blackberries. Um, uh, that was uh, that was a big thing. Uh, there might have been a snake in the bushes there. It could get exciting. But the thing about Graham Kennedy was he was sick of that suburban conformity. Um, uh, he was impish. He was he was evil in uh, in in the best kind of way and he's he leapt onto our screens uh, being bad and saying i what what his message was uh, this place is too dull to be believed and i'm not going to be dull and um so he sent up commercials that he was supposed to be selling he double entendre uh, uh, was blowing out into our living rooms and uh, we loved it. Even my old grandmother loved it. She knew that, that he was far more interesting than most other things that were happening in Melbourne. You, and then there's this road to Damascus moment, your description, not mine, in 1967, when you and your then wife, Carol, go to the old Russell Street Theatre Gosh, I remember that place, all in black. And you see a production of Arthur Miller's play Incident at Vichy. And what was it about that production and your unpacking of that that led you on the road to writing plays? Well, up to then, Corrie, I thought that the only avenue for someone who wanted to be a writer was a novelist because there were some novels being published in Australia. And I was greatly taken, as you say, with that black uh, American black humour genre that started with um, Joseph Heller and Catch-22. Um, so I thought the only possibility is to write novels, which I wasn't ready to do and wasn't, wasn't good at. So I did reams of bad novels. I'd, I'd been excited by theatre in, in school, by Julius Caesar, and when I started writing um, engineers reviews, then university reviews, the connection between actors saying the lines and reaction on stage was terrific, but I'd never thought there was a possibility because there was one play, Summer of the 17th Doll, back in 53, and I think there was one other. But Australian plays were so rare on our stages at that time that it just didn't um, seem possible because our theatre was controlled by John Sumner, an Englishman, whose um, his objectives for his Melbourne Theatre Company, number one, when, when you translate it in the subtext, it's to uplift and... Uh, and educate the barbarous natives in the ways of a finer English culture. So it was all English plays and uh, our actors had to go overseas and learn English accents and then come back and get a job. So, but on that particular night, yeah, I thought, oh no, um, I was so gripped by the intensity of the feeling between those live actors on stage and the reaction of the audience. It was a gut reaction to a powerful play and the immediacy of that reaction reminded me of the thrill I got 
writing reviews and something in my head said, that's what you've got to do. That's the voice in my head proved to be right. But um, that was the moment, yeah. I, I kept thinking during my reading of the memoir that, that how does an engineering student, you know, m- move into the space of uh, writing Australian plays at a time, as you say, when it wasn't kind of de rigueur. So how did you get there? And and, and then there's there's a line that you say, and I can't recall, I searched the book last night, I should have underlined it, I can't find it, but you say something that gave me the um, feeling that, of course, engineering is a comfortable fit. It's a bit like, why do so many doctors become great winemakers? Why do so many chemists I know, um, why are they such wonderful cooks? What is it about an engineer that he has he or she has the capacity to unpack or put together something in the most perfect form it can be I wonder whether there's any skill set there why did you think you could do this was there a skill set there that you were relying upon I don't think I directly uh, thought that the engineering would be uh, useful uh, but in a sense structure is incredibly important in plays that are a very uh, sparse form of writing you can't waste words in them and you've got to get uh, the story momentum going and to, to get that going you um, you actually need uh, a very tight structure so maybe there's something in that putting together of pieces to form a whole that is part of an engineering brain that could be uh, that could be true too but in the meantime I'd also gone back to Melbourne University and was um, into a um, an MA prelim in psychology, um, which is virtually an honest honest degree in psychology. And that was the area that I was really interested in. I gravitated towards social psychology, the way that people influence other people, which was what I ended up writing on stage. That was the consuming passion of my life then. But that engineering obsession to make everything fit together and and work, you're right, could have been part of it. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. So let's go back to those Melbourne years. In the, in the book, you define this period, you call them the Melbourne years, 1942 to 1979, which is when you left Melbourne to live in Sydney. And you call it, this section of the book, you call it the club. Why? Um, well, Melbourne always never quite felt to me like an Australian city um, in the sense that uh, there was still a very English, when I was small, there was still a very English overlay to, to Melbourne. The, uh, the Melbourne club uh, was, uh, was the epicentre of power in town, essentially British in its nature. Uh, people in Turak and South Yarra still referred to England as home, even if they'd never been there. Uh, the accents in Turak and uh, the upper areas of Melbourne were much more English than the Australian working class vernacular. The public school system seemed to be far more important than anywhere else in Australia, where you went, if you went to Melbourne Grammar or Geelong Grammar, you were virtually set up for, even if you're a deal, your father would get you into advertising or something, uh, (laughs) something like that. Um, private school backgrounds uh, seem to be all important in in Melbourne whereas every time I went to Sydney this was a city that was founded by political agitators 
small-time criminals. Uh, it was overseen by a totally corrupt officer class who traded in rum. There was no way that Sydney wasn't totally Australian uh, right from the start. Uh, they did have a private school system, but nobody seemed, seemed to care up there in the way they did in Melbourne. So, yeah, Melbourne always felt a little alien to me, and I felt left out of the status structure of that town because I'd only been to a state school. It wasn't until I got to university that I felt accepted that we were all university students then. But then you then you come up against it when it's La Mama versus the Pram Factory in the late sixties, early seventies, which again is such an interesting extension of that. You know, my my view of Melbourne is always there. There are elements of Melbourne that love to exclude, and there are elements of Sydney that love to include. And sometimes they include everybody too much to their detriment, and sometimes Melbourne excludes too many to its detriment. <laughs> <laughs> And so here I am imagining, oh, it's, you know, Carlton's just awash with, you know, love and bonhomie and let's try new ideas. And, and <laughs> it, it ended up, as I'm reading your book, it's quite, and, and of course, Graham Blundell has told me this too, it was quite political. And that tension between La Mama and the Pram Factory, so interesting. And through that rivalry, able to probably create some amazing product but what was it about the two, those two theatre organisations? Well, look, essentially, um, again, going back to Shakespeare, human egos, the, the struggle for dominance, the struggle for power. Uh, there were some very bright young minds around Carlton at that time, Graham being probably the brightest of them and the most, um, and most uh, charismatic and energetic. But um, there are other people of influence like uh, the acerbic Alan Finney, who's still a friend of mine. And if you left Alan out of anything, you did it at your own peril. Uh, uh, and so, yes, when I arrived at La Mama, uh, Betty Burstall got my early plays read, and then that group, Bruce Spence, um, Peter Cummins, Alan Finney, M Martin Phelan, took on my work, and they had a really deep hatred of that Flundell and his APG around the corner. Flundell got fed up. He started at La Mama, but the politics just got too much for him. And um, a lot of them didn't want to ever put theatre on. They wanted to do an eternal workshop to develop their personalities. That's um, and, 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 and Graham wanted to actually put some theatre on. So he went around the corner and uh, with the help of John Tillman, I think, and a few others, uh, started the APG. And that, as, a, as you said, that that rivalry was intense, but it really benefited my career because as soon as uh, Graham heard that the mob round the corner, the, the La Mama mob were doing one of my plays, he thought, oh, well, I better read that play that's been sitting on my desk called Don's Party. And so I got two productions virtually at once. Which is just phenomenal. And and the, you, um, you have had a problem with the critics over the years. Some critics have been spiteful and agitated about the fact that you take um, social settings, our lives, people we know, often middle class um, setting, and you put them on the boards for two hours and we're all expected to sit through this, which of course audiences love, but critics are, haven't, always, haven't always been gracious about that. You, met, you said before, uh, one, you know, one reason why critics perhaps have been intolerant it's to do with their great, you know, a, a bigger being, a greater philosophy that they're chasing. But did it? Did the Melbourne critics 
wear you down to the point that that was a, one of the decisions, one of the factors to go to Sydney? Yes, yes uh, it was, Kyrie. Um, the, the Melbourne audience reaction to my early plays was electric. Um, uh, there was no doubt the, the first night of removalists, there was a dead silence at the end and then thunderous applause. And um, two of my heroes, um, John Rommel and Jack Hibbert bounded up the stairs to congratulate me and I felt anointed. I felt part of a, a club. I thought, well, that kind of reaction must be acknowledged, but of course it wasn't. Um, uh, that was my first lesson. Don't uh, assume that the audience, which is an accurate assessor of your work, will be reflected by the critics who are often not an accurate assessor of your work. So that was a, uh, and the same thing happened with Don's party around the corner. When they went to Sydney, uh, well, the, the genre was misrecognised in Australia. We had a particularly stolid group of um, uh, reviewers who were steeped in naturalistic reviewing theory, which, which said that all characters must be totally three-dimensional and we must understand every aspect of their present behaviour as a result of something that happened in their past. And if you don't show that, it's not a good play. Well, uh, Sydney, when I went to Sydney, they... They, they recognised it wasn't, my work wasn't failed naturalism, that it was black satire. And uh, the audiences in Melbourne twigged that straight away. I have no, um, no argument with their reaction. And the Sydney audiences twigged that the difference was the Sydney critics knew what they were seeing. They knew what they were seeing was uh, a very dark, it was removalist, a very dark uh, uh, satire on the worst aspects of Australian male behaviour and similarly with, uh, with, with Don's party. So yes, there was a better critical atmosphere for me in Sydney than Melbourne. And um, secondly, Melbourne, um, the breakup of my marriage was, was something that caused a lot of bad vibes in Carlton um, because Kristen and, and Peter Green were big figures in Carlton at that time. And to this boy from the suburbs um, coming in and swooping off with one of the... <laughs> the um, royalty of Carlton was not looked on very favourably and uh, in fact Graham Blundell remained practically our only friend when we, were, when we were holed out in North Carlton and a little flat he came up and said oh he said uh, David and Kristen don't don't walk down Ligon Street or you'll be um, uh, you'll be <laughs> you'll experience waves of hatred so there was that sense that we, first we got out to Hurstbridge but then uh, said um, so it was yeah it was that combination of feeling that my work was accepted for what it was in Sydney plus the the bad vibes that our marriage breakup had left plus a sense that as I said before that Melbourne was less of an Australian city in many ways than um, uh, than Sydney. David, you, you continued life in Sydney. Your, your life was at a blistering pace. You had, you had been so busy um, in Melbourne too. But in Sydney, there are so many projects occurring, uh, screen and television projects, a bit later on American film projects, and all the while you're still producing a plethora of plays. And it's... It's just a blistering pace over 50 years and eventually your health, it takes a toll on its, on your health, which inevitably stress does. Do you wish now looking back that perhaps you'd taken an easier path? Oh, um, 
Yeah, well, if there's one thing I shouldn't have done uh, that caused uh, uh, the ma maximum stress, it was uh, the ABC comedy series Dog's Head Bay. Um, Kristen and I worked together on it with the, the McElroys as producers, and it was a disaster because we were totally underfunded. We had about a third of the budget we needed to make it look decent. It looked like it was... Um, uh, a home movie uh, shot on, on, on Super 8. It was so badly funded, um, the sets looked like cardboard. <laughs> and we knew a disaster was unfolding, but, uh, and that's when um, the stress was at a peak, but it was associated with the worst project I've ever done in my life, yeah. At the end of the 1990s, you, uh, you, you write in the book, I wanted out of our frenetic Sydney social life and the porcupine prickliness of its social encounters. For someone who's, um, so many of your players have been based on social encounters and interactions, I was interested that they were actually driving you to despair and you and Kristen decided to move to Queensland to Noosa. Can you unpack that yeah. um, comment for it me? Was more, it was more me than Kristen. Kristen was, was well adjusted to, to Sydney. She thrived in Sydney. Her journalistic career took off then her... Um, and her uh, book writing career took off. She was really a, a Sydney person. I think, yeah, I've always been, see, right from the time of the eternal warfare of my parents, I got very good at reading the subtext. My mother taught me, if nothing else, uh, to never take a, a, what someone was saying on the surface at face value. She had a paranoid mindset that always looked beneath to find the hidden daggers that were lurking in the subtext. So I could, um, I must have picked up that skill from her. I could always work out the hidden daggers that were um, were lurking in the subtext. And um, Sydney social life, if you are successful, the thing about Sydney, it's a very competitive city. And if you, if your plays one after the other are getting great audiences and, and you're doing well, There'll be a lot around who will be what I call um, surface friends or false friends that would uh, uh, pretend to celebrate your success. But um, it, in the subtext, there'd be daggers there that like, um, how are the crits? Uh, I, I only read one and it, it, it didn't, didn't seem to be very positive. Um, but I'm sure the others were fine, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I, I got sick of Sydney. I got sick of its power structures and its, um, and also the, the frenetic pace of living, the, the difficulty of getting from A to B and finding a parking spot, the sheer physical difficulty as you get older of living in a big city. Uh, big cities, in a sense, sense, are young people's cities. They've got the energy to find a parking spot. I, I didn't and the noise, the pollution, uh, but also the social daggers were thick and fast uh, there, and I was always on the alert for them uh, because, even, as even, I say... Sorry, go on. Uh, well, envy is another human universal that is quite strong and um, and quite often unacknowledged, but it's there in the, uh, the subject. So I just wanted to get out to a nice, peaceful place where... Um, or I could walk down the street and um, um, nobody could ask me how the crits were in my last play were. <laughs> and yet you're both such gregarious people. After a few years in Noosa, you say, oh, we, don't, we have no friends. We need to bring friends. <laughs> so you start an arts festival, which is just as you do. Well, yeah, Chris and I, plus some other good 
local friends uh, like Brett Dean decided that it was a perfect backdrop for a uh, for an arts festival um, but it had to be a local arts festival you couldn't just use the town as a backdrop you had to involve it and that was the hard political and social work uh, to get it moving and um, it's celebrating its 20th year this year and it's still going strong but Chris and I are just patrons now but yeah we look back with some pride that we didn't just come as eternal tourists in this beautiful part of the world we actually did add something to, to our city. I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so happy to hear that because so often people do a sea change or a tree change and they don't they just do it for themselves and they just sort of socially they, they selfishly stick to their own landscape and their own life and they don't give anything back to the community that has welcomed them so well done yeah. 20 years is great well yeah well most festivals don't last that long but ours seems to have powered on and uh, yeah as i said it's it's something we said well at least we didn't just come here but it's something we've left behind david uh, your book suggests to me that you are you, you and you say that you're you were you've always been an anxious person and in fact at, at times you've had quite serious uh, anxiety and panic attacks, which certainly now in the 21st century, people are much more open to not only talking about, but understanding it in others. There's a, you know, there's a lot more that we are compassionate about. I suspect if you'd had a panic attack in the 1960s, somebody would, like your mother would have looked at you and said, oh, for God's sake, get off the floor. You're trying to get the attention. But the other um, aspect of your personality that I was intrigued by is your sensitivity and your feeling of, um, you know, am I good enough? You're, it's, it's a kind of a, an, an insecurity about yourself. Am I good enough? Is that a fair assessment that I have made from reading your book? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I think self-esteem is a fairly precarious thing and I've always had a precarious sense of it. There's a saying in the profession, actors are all saying, I'm only as good as my last performance. Nobody remembers the good ones before that. It's just what you do now. And, and in, in my profession, you do feel as if you're only as good as what you're doing now, that you can't rest on your laurels of your, your back career. It's probably not uh, a rational feeling, but it's certainly human nature um, to never feel secure. Um, because that keeps us striving in the future. If we hadn't have kept striving, um, we probably wouldn't have survived. So yeah, to, to feel eternally uncomfortable about where we are in life, it seems to be a human characteristic. Before we finish up, David, I just wanted to ask you about the, the current mood of the nation. We've been in lockdown here. I don't know whether you and Kristen were in Sydney during the recent lockdown or whether you were in Noosa. No, we were lucky. We were in Queensland. The lockdowns were short and sharp up there, uh, very few of them. Queensland almost uh, has had a normal life for a long while now. I'm down in Sydney now, facing the COVID terror, um, but um, we're double, well, actually triple inoculated, so we're hoping for the best. But certainly COVID has caused a huge upheaval in the world's social patterns. Well, Michael Looney... And I don't know when he actually did this particular cartoon, but at the end of last year's lockdown in Melbourne, The Age featured, when they were happily featuring his cartoons, um, they featured one of his pieces that talked about in difficulty and hardship and times of, of trouble, uh, you know, good things come out of it, which reminds us of, you know, the Middle Ages, they had the Black Plague and then we had the Renaissance. Can you see any 
in terms of our cultural life and the way we are with one another, can you see any positives emerging from from this? I mean, Melbourne people will tell you there are changes, certainly in the way we communicate with one another, whether they're long-term, I don't know. But I wondered whether you'd had a sense of any of that or you have any observations from afar? Yeah, there was a sense that communication with our, uh, our Melbourne son and his family was more vital in the times when they were locked down because we we could tell they were under isolation stress that life was not normal for them and it it helped to to do this sort of thing to get on 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 zoom and or on facetime or whatever and just communicate with them um on a regular basis and we'd have long talks the sort we we didn't have when life was normal. So that was different. Um, again, now Melbourne's gone back to normal. Uh, that isn't as, as pressing a need, but it all, all, all also apparently made people feel how important social connection was uh, when they didn't have it. Um, and the fact that when lockdown is released, people at some risk of themselves go flooding back to theatres and um, to communal activities when they're allowed to it's like the dam has burst ah we can we can get together with an audience in the theater again this is amazing um it's like a new experience Uh, so hopefully people may appreciate uh those things that they have missed to an even greater degree perhaps there'll be a boom in theater and uh, people seeking communal um uh, life again well, we talk about certainly. The, certainly, the, our profession was hit like for six during this this period. Yeah, well, it's been, so. it's been terrible, and it's coincided with a federal government that has turned its back on humanities courses at universities that made no allowances for artists of any kind, performing visual or otherwise, in its um, in its you know job seeker oh. job keeper role last year. So. I hope you're right. I, there is a sense, yes, of people going back to the theatre and, and other things and having a joyful community experience. And and there's more of an awareness, I think, of simple pleasures. Yeah, I think so. And um, and obviously, if the strains weren't too great in, in isolation, uh, the family's got to know each other in a way that was more intense than, um, than, than normal life. And that might have, have stuck to more tolerant of, of needs and um, uh, failures and frictions. Um, my Melbourne family seemed to have got through it as an even tighter unit than when they went into it. So maybe that's one lasting positive thing. Uh, you well, wouldn't want you wouldn't want to enforce it on anyone, but uh, well, if you, you decide are. if you decide to get the writing band back together at some point, I think there is a really good piece of theatre in lockdown Melbourne. I really, I really, I really do. And friends sorting out who are the good friends and and relatives and husbands and wives working out they can't possibly spend twenty four seven with each other in the same house. It's been fascinating. <laughs> well, Chris and I were, were, were handmade for lockdown uh, if it occurred because we've been used to working in the same house for uh, forty five years now. So we somehow worked out how to get on with each other. So, David, the decision to no longer write plays, can you tell us about that? Well, look, you know, look, 50 years and 55 plays, it, it's 
it's exhilarating. I got addicted to it. I loved the feeling that I created something that was connecting palpably with an audience. That was the big buzz. Uh, but times move on, as I say in the book, I didn't want to be 99 staggering around wondering why <laughs> no one was coming to my plays anymore. And it was quite an interesting having, experience. Having fights with people like Peter Craven. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, he, he liked the book. That was, um, yeah, that was something. Um, the, uh, and writing the book, this book was a big effort. And, and uh, you know, I just want to rest from the word processes for, uh, for a little while. And I do have five kids and 14 grandkids and uh, and a strong relationship with my wife still after all these years. So um, it's, uh, it, it's time for me to try and nurture those connections and not be quite so self-obsessed as you have to be when you're, you're writing it at, um, at pace. Well, on behalf of all Australian theatre goers and, and everybody around the world who's seen your work both on the screen through movies like Gallipoli, through to all the stage, the many stage productions, we thank you for being self-absorbed and self-obsessed <laughs> and so focused on your work. We are eternally grateful. You've shone the light on, on our society and... And each time I've sat in one of your in one of the performances of one of your plays, you've made me think about us, me, them, and the world in which we live. And, and it's an Australian story that we always hear, and that's what's most important of all. So we're hugely grateful. C.S. Lewis said, you are never too old to set another goal or to dream a new dream. So I hope whatever dreams are in your head, David, that they... Um, they reach fruition and even if it is just walking along the beach with grandchildren or or indeed getting lost in the Noosa National Park like you did not so long ago, we wish you all the best and um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure, Corrie, and thank you so much for your, your intelligent probing. Thanks. And a big thank you again to David Williamson for joining us today on The Book Pod. Thank you, everybody, for listening and we look forward to seeing you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.